Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 266, In Search of Boston's First Street Lamps. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about the first streetlights in Boston. What can the Boston Massacre teach us about how dark the streets and alleyways of Boston were in the years before streetlights? How did the town of Boston decide to buy English oil lamps for the streets, but fuel them with American whale oil? How did Boston's very first street lamps survive a shipwreck and the Boston Tea Party? And who decided where they'd be installed and how they'd be maintained? In the era of climate change, what does the future hold for Boston's quaint remaining gas street lamps? Stay tuned for all those answers and more. But before we talk about Boston's first streetlights, I just want to pause and thank everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Like you, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've been on a big kick lately of listening to local history podcasts, whether that's East Bay Yesterday or the Bowery Boys or the Charleston Time Machine. I love listening to how other cities learn about their local history to the tune of about a dozen shows a week. Lucky for me, listening to podcasts is free. Unfortunately for me, making podcasts is not. Our Patreon sponsors pay for our podcast media hosting, web hosting and security, online audio processing tools, and automatic transcription service. Their support means that I can focus on researching and recording good episodes instead of worrying about how to cover the costs. Josh F. is our newest Patreon sponsor, and longtime sponsor Michelle S. just doubled her monthly support and joined our new William Monroe Trotter tier at $20 a month. To Josh, Michelle, and all of our sponsors, thank you. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start for as little as $2 a month, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. I've always had a soft spot for the old-timey gas street lamps that are found in a handful of historic Boston neighborhoods. I'm not talking about the old-fashioned street lights that you might see on the paths through Boston Common or around the Charlestown Navy Yard. The ones with the round, frosted glass globe atop a metal pole are electric lights that were manufactured to look like old gas lamps. The ones I'm talking about are entirely angular, with no curved glass at all. They have a metal pole that tends to be smaller in diameter and simpler in design than the ones supporting those electric lights, or sometimes a metal elbow attached to a building. At the top, a metal armature angles up to support the lamp, which is set in a square metal base. On each side of the square, trapezoidal glass panes reach up and out, and then four more trapezoidal panes angle up and back in, making the square fixture flared out in the middle and transparent on all four sides. So to recap, if you see a round base with a round, frosted glass globe, that's an electric light. If you see a square base with transparent, angular glass panels, that's a gas lamp, at least for now. The dead giveaway, however, is that you can clearly see the fabric mantles inside the clear housing, burning brightly with a warm, white gas flame. 
I love how on the streets that use gas lamps, even the red lamps marking fire call boxes are gas. Look out for them the next time you're walking around City Square in Charlestown, Marlboro Street in the Back Bay, a few blocks around Bay Village, or of course Beacon Hill. Even though there are really just a handful of streets using gas lamps, they're such a clear symbol of historic Boston that back when co-host Nikki and I operated a walking tour company, we used the profile of one of these lamps in our company logo. Despite being an iconic symbol, however, they're not Boston's original street lamps. The first gas lamps were installed in Boston in 1828, and the city wasn't fully converted to gas lighting until the 1880s. Gas lamps are not the beginning of Boston's history with streetlights, however. To find the first Boston streetlights, we have to go back to the series of crises that led up to the American Revolution. I was inspired to look into the earliest Boston streetlights by a talk about the Boston Massacre. In March of 2022, Katie Turner-Getty gave a talk around the massacre anniversary about the women who bore witness to the bloody massacre in King Street. Her description of the physical surroundings of the confrontation were very evocative, and one of the things she focused on was the darkness of the night. My mental image of the Boston Massacre is shaped by two things, the Paul Revere engraving of the event and the annual reenactment held each March. In both cases, the participants are well lit, by modern streetlights in the case of the reenactment and by Revere's imagination in the case of the engraving. In reality, however, the massacre occurred on a cold winter's night that would have been nearly as dark as a night camping in the White Mountains. With no streetlights, the sentry and the rowdy crowd surrounding him would have been lit only by the moon, the stars, and perhaps by a bit of lamplight spilling out from under someone's door or between their shutters. Getty pointed us to a late 19th century print of the massacre by Walter Gilman Page, which portrays the events unfolding in an inky darkness, with the old statehouse barely silhouetted in the moonlight, and the faces of the colonists illuminated only by the first muzzle flash as the redcoats fire into the crowd. I'll include that image in the show notes, and I think it'll change how you picture the massacre. That isn't to say that there were no attempts to shed a little light on the streets of Boston before that time. In an essay about lanterns in early America published in a 1904 edition of the Connecticut Magazine, C.A. Quincy Norton describes the scattershot approach to lighting the city's streets in Boston's early years. The streets of ancient Boston were not regularly lighted until 1774, although for a number of years before this date, there were many private lanterns, either over the front doors of the larger houses or near the gates opening onto the main streets. A few of the more pretentious stores also maintained lanterns in front of their doors during the winter months. There was, as early as 1695, several large iron cressets, or fire baskets, on the corners of some of the most frequented streets. These were kept supplied with pine knots by the night watchman, and by their flickering, smoky light, assisted this official in the discharge of his duties. The first organized approach to street lighting for Boston is tied to another of the crises that helped precipitate our revolution. In the weeks leading up to the event that we remember as the Boston Tea Party on December 16, 1773, Boston nervously awaited four tea ships. 
The Dartmouth arrived first on November 28th, followed by the Eleanor on December 2nd. The Beaver arrived in the Outer Harbor on December 7th, but there had been a case of smallpox on board during the journey, so she was ordered to anchor at Rainsford Island for a week until the sickness was gone. The Beaver's move from the Outer Harbor to Griffin's Wharf on December 15th was the immediate trigger for the destruction of the three cargoes of tea the next night. The fourth tea ship, known as the William, never arrived in Boston. Five nights earlier, she had encountered a strong gale, gotten blown off course, and drifted dangerously close to the Cape Ann shore. On the night of December 10th, Captain Joseph Loring fought the wind and waves for hours, nearly sinking within sight of the twin lights on Thatcher Island. Then he beat for open water with the hope of trying again another day. He followed the wind southeast, trying to break out of the tight confines of Massachusetts Bay for the relative safety of the open Atlantic. He was unsuccessful. 1774 author Mary Beth Norton described the resulting wreck in a 2016 paper. Almost exactly 24 hours after the near disaster at Cape Ann, the William once again encountered waves breaking on a lee shore. This time, Loring could not sail the vessel away from the coast, so he ordered the anchors to be let out. She rode to her anchors about half an hour, the sea running very high and wind blowing more violent on shore, he recalled. The William then drifted onto a sandbar where the anchors held the ship for several more hours. Around 9 o'clock on the morning of December 11th, the tide peaked, the storm continued, and the surf began to break over the vessel. By then, the hold was awash with four feet of water, and the ship's pumps were proving inadequate. In desperation, Loring decided that it was impossible for her to remain any longer in this condition without loss of the vessel and cargo, and our own lives. And so, at his orders, the crew cut the anchor cables. Just a few minutes later, the vessel ran onto shore about two miles east of Race Point, at the tip of Cape Cod on what are now known as the Peaked Hill Bars, more than 39 nautical miles from Cape Ann and north of the town of Truro. The first notice of this wreck ran in the Boston newspapers on December 16th, probably getting lost in the news of that evening's tea party, when a group of patriots dressed in crude Native American costumes destroyed the cargoes of tea that had arrived in Boston. A few days later, another piece ran in the December 20th Boston Gazette and Country Journal. Captain Loring, in a brig from London for this place, having 58 chests of the detested tea on board, was cast ashore on the back of Cape Cod last Friday. Tis expected the Cape Indians will give us a good account of the tea against our next. That fate was exactly what the legal owner of the tea was trying to avoid. After seeing news of the shipwreck in the papers, tea consignee Richard Clark's son Jonathan rode as quickly as he could to the Outer Cape to salvage the Williams' cargo. Despite pressure from the local patriots, he was eventually able to gather the tea safely in Provincetown, with a little bit of assistance. While Clark made the 119-mile ride, Justice of the Peace John Greeno took charge of the salvage operation. He compensated the local laborers who took on the job by dividing the contents of one damaged tea chest among them. 
The night after the work was completed, December 18th, another storm hit Race Point, and what was left of the William was completely destroyed. Local captains from P-Town and Truro refused to load the salvage tea on their vessels, but eventually Clark and Greeno convinced the captain of a Salem schooner to transport 51 chests of tea to Fort William at Castle Island for safekeeping. Clark paid Greeno for overseeing the salvage operation with two chests of tea. One of the chests was seized and burned by P-Town Patriots, while the other was offered for sale by a shady character a few months later, as reported in the Connecticut Journal. Lyme, March 17, 1774 Yesterday, one William Lampson of Martha's Vineyard came to this town with a bag of tea, about a hundred pounds, on horseback which he was peddling about the country. It appeared that he was about a business which he supposed would render him obnoxious to the people, which gave reason to suspect that he had some of the detestable tea lately landed at Cape Cod. And, upon examination, it appeared to the satisfaction of all present to be a part of that very tea. Whereupon, a number of the Sons of Liberty assembled in the evening, kindled a fire, and committed its contents to the flames, where it was all consumed and the ashes buried on the spot, in testimony of their utter abhorrence of all tea subject to a duty for the purpose of raising a revenue in America. A laudable example for our brethren in Connecticut. The 51 chests of salvaged tea reached Castle Island on January 4, 1774. By then, most of the tea consignees who'd witnessed the mob's rage over tea two weeks before had gotten cold feet, and the tea sat unsold. By March, much of it had been seized by the Customs Service for non-payment of the controversial duties. It's possible that some of Richard Clark's tea had been redistributed for sale, and that it might have been among the tea that was burned by Boston Patriots in a second, smaller tea party on March 8. Of course, tea was not the only cargo carried by the despised tea ships. Very famously, the Dartmouth was carrying the first edition of Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, the first volume of poetry by Phyllis Wheatley. But there were also other perfectly mundane cargoes aboard all the tea ships. According to Norton's account, the William also carried medicines, black pepper, and glass bottles. Most importantly to our story this week, however, it carried about 300 of the first streetlights for Boston. In a postscript to a letter he wrote to a friend in which he describes the destruction of the tea, Boston merchant John Andrews noted on December 19, 1773, I give you joy of your easy riddance of the baneful herb, being just informed by the arrival of the post that it's gone from whence it came. I forgot to acquaint you last evening that Loring, in a brig belonging to Clark, one of the consignees, is on shore at the back of Cape Cod, drove thither by a storm last Friday week, who has the last quota of tea for this place, being 58 chests, which completes the 400. It's unlucky that Loring has the lamps on board for illuminating our streets. Am sorry if they are lost, as we shall be deprived of their benefit this winter in consequence of it. Bostonians were deprived of street lamps during the winter of 1773, but they wouldn't be deprived forever. 
The lamps on their way to Boston were the product of a series of town meetings that culminated in a vote in favor of acquiring street lamps on May 11, 1772. Citizens of Boston voluntarily contributed money by subscription to pay for the new lamps, so all that was needed was enabling legislation. That, in turn, was passed in July 1773 and authorized the purchase of lamps for enlightening the streets, lanes, alleys, or passageways in the town of Boston. Why this required an act of the state legislature, I'm not quite sure. But the new law does a good job of pointing out why the town needed lights. The enlightening of streets, lanes, alleys, and passageways in large and populous towns by lamps hung up in the nighttime is not only ornamental, but very advantageous to all such persons as have occasion to pass in and through the same about their lawful business, and tends greatly for the safety and preservation of the inhabitants by the discovery and prevention of fires, burglaries, robberies, thefts, and other lesser breaches of the peace. The first section empowers the selectmen of Boston to set up and affix such and so many lamps and in such streets, lanes, alleys, and passageways in said town for enlightening the same as the town or such persons as they may appoint shall in their judgment think necessary and for the common benefit. And the better to preserve and regulate such lamps, said selectmen are hereby empowered to appoint and contract with any person or persons for the lighting, cleaning, snuffing, and repairing the same. The second section mandates that anyone who accidentally damages a lamp or the post it's on will be liable for the cost of repair, and that anyone who deliberately damages or destroys one would face a fine of 20 pounds. In addition, if any person or persons sentenced to pay the aforesaid fine of 20 pounds and costs shall refuse to pay the same, he or they shall be punished for the offense by being imprisoned not exceeding six months or by whipping not exceeding 20 stripes. So do not plan on damaging a Boston street lamp. The selectmen were empowered to take down or remove any post or sign thereon in any street, lanes, alleys, or passageways in said town, or that now are, or hereafter may be, fixed or that adjoin to any dwelling house or building, in case they shall judge that any such post or sign tends to intercept or in any way lessen the light in said lamp. If the owner of the obstruction didn't comply within 48 hours, the selectman could have someone remove the problem themselves and fine the owner six shillings for every day the obstruction remained. At the same time, the legislation reassured property owners that the owners of any lamps placed or set up in said town at their own private expense may at any time take down or remove the same or extinguish the light thereof anything in this act notwithstanding. Any fines levied against someone who violated the new law by leaving up a sign or post that obstructed the street lamps, or by deliberately damaging one of the lamps, were to be used for the upkeep and repair of the lamps. Well, half the fine would go to the repair budget. The other half would be paid out as a bounty to whoever informed on the person who violated the law. If the town thought that more lamps, repairs, or other supporting equipment were necessary beyond what the fines would pay for, the final section of the law authorized them to levy a tax on all residents to pay for them. 
With the authorizing legislation in place, it was up to the selectmen of the town of Boston to appoint a committee to oversee street lighting, and it would be left up to that committee to come up with a plan. Luckily for us, one of revolutionary Boston's most reliable diarists was appointed to be part of the committee. Boston merchant John Rowe's diary records his first day on this duty. March 1st. Afternoon, I spent at Faneuil Hall with the committee about lighting the lamps. Present were myself, Henderson, Inches, William Phillips, Benjamin Austin, and Mr. Appleton. And yes, that is probably the same Benjamin Austin, whose son fought a bloody duel to defend his honor in 1806. You can listen to episode 216 from February 2021 for more about that story. Over the course of the next few meetings, the committee slowly gathered more members, some of whom have famous names. Rose Diary records the addition of Deacon Ebenezer Storer of the Brattle Street Church on May 4th. Then even more members are named later in May, as the committee divided the city into lighting districts and chose locations for the lamps. May 18th. Attended the committee about fixing the lamps. We finished the north part of the town. Number 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 divisions. Present were myself, Deacon Phillips, Deacon Storer, Thomas Gray, Mr. Appleton, Major Dawes, to which were the gentlemen of the several wards, Mr. Jonathan Brown, Mr. John Leach, Mr. Paul Revere, Mr. Edward Proctor, Mr. Thomas Hitchman. May 24th. This day I went with the committee about the lamps to view the wards number 6, 7, and 8, which we finished. I'm sure you recognize Mr. Paul Revere's name there. A half dozen books and articles I looked at named John Hancock as a member of this committee as well, but I wasn't able to find his name in Rose's diary. I'm not sure at what point exactly the committee decided that the lamps needed to be ordered from England, but they did. They selected lamps that had metal bases and glass tops, not too dissimilar from today's gas lamps. The difference, of course, is that the earlier street lamps did not burn pressurized gas delivered from centralized gas lines. Instead, they had a metal oil reservoir at the bottom, a metal burner that held an adjustable fabric wick, and then a glass shade above to shelter the small flame from the wind. All the parts of the lamps, minus the poles or elbows that they'd be mounted to, were manufactured in England. The order had to cross the Atlantic in one direction, then the lamps had to be manufactured, procured, and loaded onto a ship along with some tea to cross the Atlantic in the other direction. It appears that Boston's street lamps were salvaged alongside the tea that washed up at Race Point in December 1773. Though I couldn't find the exact date, they were brought back to Boston around the first of the year. In John Rowe's diary, there's a gap in the discussion about the Committee for the Lamps for a few months following their September meeting, until the next meeting is noted on January 8, 1774. On that same day, Boston craftsman Thomas Newell's diary notes, began to make the tops of the glass lamps for this town. So it appears that although the glass for the street lamps was destroyed in the wreck of the William, the lantern bases were recovered and restored locally. 
With the oil lamps in Boston and almost ready for installation, the Street Lighting Committee kicked into high gear in January 1774. With Rowe's diary recording meetings to discuss the details of installing the lamps and how they'd be operated each day. January 19th. I attended the carpenter and blacksmith in marking out the places the lamps are to be fixed. January 20th. This forenoon, the selectmen and the committee for the lamps met at Faneuil Hall. We consulted on the method of lighting them and had a long conference with Mr. Smith for that purpose. An appendix to a book about, of all things, gas manufacturing plants in Massachusetts contains this critique of early street lamps highlighting the very manual method of lighting them that the town came up with. They were dim, erratic, sometimes blew out in high winds, smoked up their glass enclosures with soot, occasionally caught fire, and tended to cast local pools of light rather than illuminating a long swath of road. And they had to be manually lit and extinguished each day by roving lamplighters equipped with poles and ladders. The lamplighter trade originally developed to service streetlights that burned whale oil, or naphtha, introduced in Boston in 1773 and paid for out of public subscription, and continued as these were replaced by gaslights. As that paragraph points out, the new street lamps were fueled by whale oil, which burned brighter and whiter than the competition and had the added benefit of being provided by the vast Nantucket New Bedford whaling fleets. After over a decade of street lamps in Boston, John Adams describes a conversation that he had with British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger in a 1785 letter. Promoting American whale oil as a trade good for import into Britain, Adams wondered why, despite having introduced street lighting into London nearly a century before Boston, the English seemed to prefer an inferior fuel. He praised the crime-fighting nature of the bright white light of Boston street lamps, which was provided by American whale oil. There could not be a doubt that spermaceti oil might find a market in most of the great cities of Europe, which were illuminated in the night, as it is so much better and cheaper than the vegetable oil that's commonly used. The fat of the spermaceti whale gives the clearest and most beautiful flame of any substance that's known in nature and we are all surprised that you prefer darkness and the consequent robberies, burglaries, and murders in your streets to the receiving as a remittance our spermaceti oil. The lamps around Grosvenor Square, I know, and in Downing Street too, I suppose, are dim by midnight and extinguished by two o'clock, whereas our oil would burn bright till nine o'clock in the morning and chase away before the watchman all the villains, and save you the trouble and danger of introducing a new police into the city. Every day, a Boston lamplighter would make his rounds, probably within a single lighting district. In the morning, he had to extinguish the preceding night's lamps, fill the oil reservoir, and trim any wicks that needed it. That evening, he'd make the rounds again, carrying a lantern and a piece of reed or straw that could transfer a flame from his lantern to each street lamp, at least until friction matches became common in the mid-1800s. The first time that Boston's lamplighters made their rounds was in March of 1774. In his diary entry for March 2nd, Thomas Newell, the craftsman who had repaired the lamps, wrote, 
a number of lamps in town were lighted this evening for the first time. Two responsible persons from each ward have been appointed to decide, with the approval of the General Committee, upon the most fitting locations in which to place the new lanterns. John Rowe's diary entry for the next day, March 3rd, simply states, Last evening, the lamps were lighted for the first time. They burnt tolerable well. The Massachusetts Gazette of that same day gives a sense of how many lamps were available for the first lighting. Last evening, two or three hundred lamps, fixed in several streets and lanes of this town, were lighted. They will be of great utility to this metropolis. C.A. Quincy Norton's essay about lanterns in early America gives us a sense of where these first two or three hundred lamps were located. From a careful reading of the historical notes relating to matters that detailed events of this period in Boston, it is evident that these street lanterns were distributed over an area of perhaps not more than a mile in either direction from the old state house. No description of these lamps has been found in any of the ancient records of Boston. The presumption is that they were small, ten-framed lanterns, and that they were suspended from iron cranes that were secured to buildings on the corners of the most frequented thoroughfares. At the end of the first month of street lighting, John Rowe and the members of his committee wound down their service. Rowe's last diary entry on the subject describes how they delivered their final report. March 30th. Town meeting this morning. I was chose moderator. We delivered in our reports respecting the erecting and fixing up the lamps in this town. It was accepted. In 1828, the Boston Gas Company erected a single gas lamp on a pole in Haymarket Square. Meant as a demonstration lamp, this privately owned fixture was the first outdoor gas lamp in the city of Boston. Gas was centrally supplied, so a lamplighter wouldn't have to fill the oil reservoir on each lamp every day. The cloth mantles didn't require daily trimming and rarely burned out. And gas could be delivered so cheaply that it eventually became more economical to leave the lamps running than to pay someone to light them every day. In 1834, the city made the leap, installing the first public gas lamps around Faneuil Hall. Over the next few decades, gas slowly replaced oil in the streets of Boston. From the 1830s on, nearly all new streetlights were fueled by gas. By the 1890s, there were conversion kits to easily convert the last few oil lamps over to gas, while electric arc lights marked a few city squares starting the 1880s. A summary written by Marta Crilly of the City Archives describes how Boston converted from gas to electric street lighting at the beginning of the 20th century, and then, surprisingly, began converting some areas back to gas a few years later. In 1909, the city began installing tungsten electric lamps. Three years later, in 1912, tungsten electric lamps began to replace existing naphtha lamps. By 1913, all gas lamps in Boston proper had been converted to electric. The following year, all lamps in Lower Roxbury were converted to electric. Although the city used electric lamps in Boston proper and areas of Roxbury, it continued to use gas lamps in its residential districts. 
the last gas lamps were installed in residential districts in 1948. During the 1940s, mercury vapor electric lamps were also installed on many of Boston's major streets. During the first half of the 20th century, outside vendors maintained the city's gas lamps. But in 1958, the city took over gas lamp maintenance. Four years later, the city began to change electric lamps in historic neighborhoods back to gas lamps. Electric-to-gas changeovers continued into the 1990s. So despite being an iconic symbol of historic Boston, most of the gas lamps that we see on the streets of Boston today were newly installed during the mid-1960s. Perhaps they're not quite as historic as I thought. By 2010, which was the most recent figure I could find, the city of Boston owned about 67,000 streetlights, most of which have been converted over to LED in the past few years. About 2,800 gas lights remain in service, and some of these now have an automatic solar mechanism that allows them to be shut off during the daytime. In a 2019 interview with Boston.com, Dan Webb of the city's street lighting division described the maintenance that the remaining gas lamps require. First of all, the cloth mantles need frequent replacement. At best, they last about a year, and they're easily damaged by everything from falling ice to a car bumping up against a light pole. The glass tops of the lamps are also easily destroyed by falling ice, and they're constantly being slowly obscured by soot. Webb noted that unbroken clear glass panes are usually replaced about once a year, but explained that it can be more frequent in some areas, saying, When you have a lot of tourists in the city, you want it welcoming. You don't want them dirty. So we actually try to step up the game and keep the areas where the tourists are real clean. And then during the week, we'll maintain the other areas. Beginning in the spring of 2022, the Wu administration started examining the possibility of converting our nostalgic old gas lamps to LED. In March, they installed a single LED assembly into an existing gas lamp on Stewart Street in Bay Village. It's designed to cast a very warm light, like the gas burner that it replaces, rather than the bluish light that we get from most LED streetlights. They're supposed to remain basically maintenance-free for 7 to 10 years, rather than requiring the fairly constant stream of work that their gas counterparts need, saving the city about $200,000 a year. Replacing our gas streetlights would also eliminate a common source of the many constant gas leaks around the city, which kill street trees, as well as perhaps posing a safety risk. The gas, whether it's burned or leaked, also contributes to climate change, and that's what's driving this initiative. In March of 2022, the city's chief of streets, Joshua Franklin Hodge, told The Globe, The planet's facing a climate emergency. And the only way to address that is to transition off fossil fuels. We want to do our part to replace our terribly inefficient gas lighting with something that's compatible with a sustainable climate. Mayor Wu hopes to replace all the city's gas lights with LED. Michael Donahue, the city's street lighting and asset manager, told the Boston Sun, Our goal is to replicate what was installed here. We use this type of burner assembly throughout the city. The goal is to have a sense of consistency. 
Perhaps predictably, neighborhood associations in the neighborhoods with gas lamps are opposed to the change. In Beacon Hill, which has the most gas lamps of any area of the city, the neighborhood association is just as flatly opposed to LED lighting as they were to ADA-compliant wheelchair ramps. In the Back Bay, the new light assemblies are seen as just a bit too red to be installed on Marlboro Street. Meanwhile, in Bay Village, the head of the neighborhood association said that there wasn't really a problem with the new light assemblies, as long as the lamps in Beacon Hill and the Back Bay are converted first, so Bay Village doesn't end up with one-off lights. To learn more about Boston's first streetlights, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 266. I'll have links to the legislation authorizing the town selectmen to install lamps on the streets, the article from the Boston Gazette and Country Journal about the wreck of the T-ship William, the letter from John Andrews noting that the first streetlights went down with the William, and merchant John Rowe's diary, which you can search for the word lamps to read about his work on the lighting committee. I'll also link to Mary Beth Norton's article about the wreck of the William, C.A. Quincy Norton's essay about lanterns in early America, and some 2022 news articles about the city's efforts to replace our gas lamps with LED. Plus, I'll include that print by Walter Gilbert Page, portraying the Boston Massacre and the pre-streetlight darkness of a Boston night. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and most active on Twitter. If you're on Mastodon, look for us as at hubhistory at better.boston. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.